There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. Yes, there are all those, plus many more. So tell me, what item first made by Joseph Swan in 1860 was banned in the U.S. starting August 1st of this year? So we're looking for the item first made in 1860 by Joseph Swan and banned in the U.S. starting this past August the 1st. Next question. Listen carefully. Around 56 B.C., the Roman poet Lucretius wrote a poem called On the Nature of Things, in which he described the ideas of Democritus, a Greek philosopher who had lived 400 years earlier and had introduced the idea of the atom as an invisible particle common to all matter. Lucretius's poem was one of the first works printed by Gutenberg after he invented the printing press in 1453. This led to Jesuit priests being prohibited from teaching about atoms. Why? <laughs> so there's an interesting question for you, one that I hope cannot so easily be Googled. So we're looking for why Jesuit priests were prohibited from teaching about atoms after Gutenberg published a poem by Lucretius that described the world being made up of atoms. All right, and I have another question that has been uh, left over from last week. We didn't get an answer, so here we go. In 1921, German-born physician Otto Lowy removed the beating hearts from two frogs and immersed them in a saline solution that allowed them to keep beating for a short time. One had the vagus nerve that controls the heart rate attached, the other did not. By electrically stimulating the vagus nerve, Lowy made the first heart beat slower. Then he took some of the liquid bathing the first heart and applied it to the second heart. What happened to the second heart? If you know the answer to any of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. And of course, you can also text to 514-800 through both of those contacts. You can also ask whatever question you may have about science that you think I may be able to have some insight uh, into. I'm George Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, background in chemistry. And as I like to say, chemistry is the thread that ties all the other sciences together. Because if you have a feel for molecules and what they can and cannot do, you have a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. <laughs> well, one thing that can happen is that we can uh, improve our chance of a longer life. And who isn't interested in that? What can we do? Well, an interesting study that just came out that investigated 700,000 US veterans who between the years of 2011 and 2019 filled out questionnaires about their lifestyle. And then the researchers took a look at medical records to see what happened to these people, because obviously some of them died during the period of the study when you're talking about 700,000 people. And they wanted to see 
how certain lifestyle factors were linked to their death. That is, was there any link to earlier death? Well, they identified eight factors that play a role in determining longevity. None of these are really surprising, but it's interesting. So here are those factors. Physical activity, the use of drugs like opioids, smoking, stress, consumption of alcohol, diet, sleep patterns, and social relationships. Now, each of those, of course, is sort of, you know, intuitively obvious. I mean, we know that things like diet and, and physical activity and smoking, and that these play a role in, in determining uh, how well and how long we will live. But what uh, these researchers were able to do was to put a number to the longevity. So, for example, low physical activity, opioid use, and smoking were associated with a 30 to 45% higher risk of death during this study period. Stress, binge drinking, poor diet, and poor sleep were associated with around a 20% increase in death risk. And lack of positive social contact, and there's a lot of talk about that these days as how important that is. Well, it turned out that that was only responsible for about 5% of the increased uh, risk. So here, I think for, for the first time, numbers were put to, to these evaluations, to these risks, which means that it is certainly worthwhile to increase physical activity, to avoid the use of uh, opioids, and to, of course, give up smoking, because that's a 30 to 45% uh, higher risk of death if you, if you uh, have low physical activity, if you use opioids, and, and, and if you smoke. So there, there really is, is no great surprise here, but uh, you know the, the numbers are interesting. So according to this survey, men who at age 40 exercised, did not use opioids, did not smoke, had little stress, consumed little alcohol, had a healthy diet, slept well, and had an extensive social network, lived 24 years longer than men who did not have any of these uh, habits. The corresponding figure for women was 21 years. Uh, so that, that's a lot of years. But of course, that meant uh, adhering to all of those lifestyle factors. And uh, uh, there are not many people who uh, fall into that category. But uh, here's the bonus. Even if some of these healthy habits are adopted at a later age, there are still benefits. And uh, the uh, researchers studied this, and they found, for example, that someone who at age 60 adopts all eight of these healthy habits can still gain an extra 20 years. But let's face it, no one is going to adopt all of those uh, healthy habits. But even adopting just one gets you an extra four years. And even if you are older when you start adopting these habits, there are still benefits. So the basic message is that you're never too old to make an effort <laughs> to get even older and hopefully stay in a healthy, uh, healthy way. So this, you know, it's 
this is not what I would call a, you know, a cutting edge study because most of these factors were already known in terms of increasing longevity. But uh, in this case, they were able to put a, a number to it. And let's face it, I mean, all of these uh, uh, habits or lifestyle factors uh, are in some way uh, adaptable. For example, diet. I mean, obviously, we can go a long way in terms of improving our diet. Uh, you can cut down on drinking alcohol. In terms of stress, well, that's a bit more difficult, how you can control your levels of, uh, of stress. Uh, it's also somewhat more difficult to control your sleep patterns. Uh, but there are you know, all kinds of, of uh, things that you can try to, uh, try to do that. Uh, there um, is, of course, one extremely important <laughs> uh, criterion that determines longevity that we do not have control over, and that is proper selection of your parents because we know that genetics plays a very, very important role in determining many factors in our life. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalide, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. Calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calciumate, soybean oil, butterfat, caramel center, all of that. I didn't get a correct answer to my question about what the U.S. banned starting August 1st of this uh, year. And the answer is the incandescent light bulb, the light bulb with a tungsten filament. And indeed, that was invented way back in 1860 by Joseph Swan in Newcastle in England. And I threw that in, of course, because most people think that the light bulb was invented by Thomas Edison. That's not the case. Edison perfected the light bulb, which is what he often did. He took inventions and he made them practical. That was his, uh, his game. But anyway, uh, uh, on August 1st, uh, the sale of incandescent light bulbs was no longer allowed in the US because of uh, the fact that they require more energy than the uh, LED bulbs that um, uh, have recently been uh, introduced. And the energy requirement uh, is significantly less for those LED uh, bulbs. Uh, however, uh, there is uh, also something that doesn't get much mentioned. James mentioned it. James, uh, as usual, had the correct answer for this question, that the tungsten light bulbs also produce heat, which for some people uh, may be uh, beneficial. Uh, but... Uh, the fact is, though, that the, the LED bulbs require so much less energy that it's still worthwhile to uh, switch to those. Canada made that decision long ago. Uh, starting way back in 2013, uh, a phase-out uh, was uh, started of the tungsten bulbs. And by 2015, uh, they were not allowed to be sold in Canada anymore. So the, what is interesting is that, so as I said, in 2015, Canada banned uh, the tungsten light bulbs, but you can still find them. I, I've seen some recently at the uh, dollar store. 
but uh, Canada banned these bulbs long, long before the uh, U.S. did. Okay, but I'm still looking for answers to my other two questions uh, and uh, about Otto Lowy and the heart. Uh, what happened to the second heart after it was immersed in fluid taken from the first beating heart? And I'm also looking for why Jesuit priests were prohibited from teaching about atoms in the Middle Ages uh, after Gutenberg had printed a poem by Lucretius that described that uh, the world was made of atoms. So why did that lead to Jesuit priests being prohibited from teaching about atoms? But now I want to talk a little bit about sourdough. Uh, I'm very critical about the bread that I eat and uh, I prefer sourdough. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff about science about sourdough, both historically and scientifically. Uh, I asked a question this morning about uh, what it was that the Egyptians used uh, that uh, recently became popular in kitchens uh, during COVID and that prospectors in the Yukon who were looking for gold slept with. And the answer to that is the sourdough starter. Well, the story of sourdough starter does not start with men seeking their fortune during the days of the Yukon gold rush. It starts some 8,000 years earlier in Mesopotamia with an observation that a mixture of ground grains and water, when allowed to stand for a while, swells in size. For thousands of years before this discovery, flour and water were routinely mixed to make a basic dough that was then baked into various types of flatbread. What was now new was the finding that dough could be leavened, that is, expanded in size by producing internal bubbles of gas, making for lighter, more easily chewed bread. Uh, the Mesopotamians also knew about making beer by fermenting barley and possibly realized that adding some liquid skimmed off from the brew and added to dough would make it rise. Or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe it was adding fermenting dough to wet barley that led to the discovery of beer. Obviously, what they did not know was that both the beer and the rising of dough were the result of action of yeasts and bacteria. And it would not be until the middle of the 19th century that Louis Pasteur would demonstrate the role of microbes in the production of both leavened bread and beer. In any case, uh, the information likely passed to the Egyptians from Mesopotamia, and the Egyptians were the first to make a record of bread being leavened using a starter made by adding water to ground kernels of wheat and letting the mixture sit until it produced bubbles and had the aroma of beer. And then adding some of this bubbling pasty sludge to dough resulted in leavening. Even the Bible records knowledge about leavening in the days of ancient Egypt. The famous story of Passover recounts the Israelites being forced to flee the Pharaoh's soldiers with such speed that they did not have time to allow the dough that had been prepared for bread to rise. They had to quickly bake it into the unleavened bread we know as matzah. Today, we understand that a sourdough starter is a culture of various yeasts and bacteria. 
Both of these are living organisms capable of reproduction and metabolism, meaning that they're able to derive energy from nutrients for growth and movement. As they metabolize nutrients, mostly sugar, they produce a variety of byproducts such as carbon dioxide, alcohol, and various acids. It is the carbon dioxide that makes for the bubbles in bread and beer, and the acids are responsible for the sour taste of sourdough bread. But where do these microbes come from? Yeast and bacteria are everywhere. They're in the soil, in the air, in our food, on and in our bodies. They're present in grains and will start to multiply under the right conditions of moisture and temperature when enzymes in flour, mostly the amylases, break starch down into simple sugars and provide nourishment that the microbes need for reproduction. And presto, we have a sourdough starter. But as you well know, not all sourdough bread tastes the same. You go to San Francisco, I think you'll have probably the best sourdough bread that exists. Turns out it contains a bacterium that has been appropriately named Lactobacillus san franciscensis. And that is responsible at least for part of the sourdough taste in San Francisco. But that bacterium is just one in the family of lactic acid bacteria that in addition to lactic acid also produce acetic acid. As with bacteria, there are many species of yeasts, more than 1,500. In a starter, the yeasts are greatly outnumbered by bacteria, but nevertheless, they're mostly responsible for the leavening uh, power. Well, what makes for a great sourdough bread? Of course, it is having just the right composition of microbes in the starter. And believe it or not, the baker's hands have a hand in this. In a fascinating experiment, researchers sent samples of the same flour to 18 bakers around the world with specific instructions about using them to make a sourdough starter. The starters were then returned and analyzed for microbial composition. Differences were expected because of course, global environments differ in microbial composition. But there was a stunning finding. The baker's hands had been swabbed and also were analyzed for the presence of microbes. Amazingly, the diversity in the starters was linked to the differences in the microbial community on the hands of the bakers. Turns out that taste of sourdough bread is a reflection of the baker's skin microbiome. That is part of the reason why sourdough bread from one bakery may taste quite different from that in another. And it is interesting to go around tasting sourdough bread, much like you go around tasting wine, because the differences are essentially for the same reason, different microbes present during fermentation. I have my favorite about sourdough bread. Got to tell you, I, I do love the stuff that is produced uh, by the Munnery on uh, on Moncon Street. But uh, there are others that make uh, very very acceptable uh, sourdough bread. Premier Masson makes a pretty good one, and I'm sure there are many others around. Uh, still, when I go to San Francisco. One of my first stops is in one of their sourdough bread bakeries. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. So for a while we conducted experiments. 
Okay, a couple of questions came in uh, off air. One of them I, I really don't know. The question was if there are any residences in the Montreal area that offer gluten-free food. Uh, I suspect that there are residences that can make gluten-free food available because these days, you know, that isn't so so hard. But I doubt that there's any residence that that uh, has only gluten-free food. But, you know, these days it's not hard to, to provide people with gluten-free food if that is needed. And that is needed for someone who suffers from celiac disease. That's less than 1% of the population, but of course that is a, a severe uh, lifestyle factor, you know, uh, when you have to avoid uh, anything that has gluten um, in it. But it, it can be done. Um, the uh, the other question I had was about the expiration date of hand sanitizer, and if it expires, what do you do with it? How do you throw it away? Well, hand sanitizer uh, is uh, based either on uh, isopropyl alcohol or ordinary ethanol. And when you have a concentration of about 60% of either one of these, uh, that is um, the, the uh, amount that you need to make sure that... Uh, uh, microbes on 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 your hands are uh, killed, but uh, as you probably know, both uh, isopropanol and ethanol are volatile, meaning that they will evaporate, and the containers in which this hand sanitizer is held are not impermeable, so you will slowly lose some of the alcohol through the uh, walls of the container. It generally takes uh, a couple of years uh, for the level to fall below the, uh, you know, 60% level when when it uh, would not be useful. But again, it's it's not a yes or no situation. Uh, so even if the concentration is less than 60%, it will still have some um, some efficacy. But generally, if you're using hand sanitizer, which actually I don't think you need to use, just washing your hands with soap and water is good enough. But if you are bent on using hand sanitizer, uh, if you have some that is over two years old, uh, it will not be as effective. If you choose to throw it out, there's no problem in, in disposing of it because, of course, we dispose of alcohol down the sink and, you know, and in our urine uh, all the time. So that's the story about the uh, hand sanitizer. I am still looking for answers to my questions. And yeah, I, I do try to make them such as to make them more difficult to, to Google, but I don't want to make them impossible to answer. So I'll give you a little more time. Let me repeat the questions. Around 56 BC, the Roman poet Lucretius wrote a poem on the nature of things in which he described the ideas of Democritus, the Greek philosopher, who 400 years earlier had introduced the idea of the atom. Lucretius' poem was about one of the first works that was printed by Gutenberg after he invented the printing press in 1453. This led to Jesuit priests being prohibited from teaching about atoms. Why? The other question was about German-born physician Otto Loewi removing the beating hearts from two frogs, immersing them in a saline solution, so they kept beating, one had the vagus nerve that controls the heart rate still attached, the other did not. By electrically stimulating this nerve, Lowe made the first heartbeat slower, 
And then he took some of the liquid the first heart was bathing in and applied it to the second heart. Question is, what did the second heart do? If you know the answer to either one of those, 514-790-0800, or you can text to 514-800, and those, of course, are also the numbers to use for any question uh, or comment that you may have. You know, originally they were called food accessory factors. Today we call them vitamins. The term food accessory factor was coined by British biochemist Frederick Gowland Hopkins in 1906 after he demonstrated that rats fed a diet of proteins, fats, carbohydrates, and minerals failed to grow. Although these were known to be the major components of the food supply, they were clearly not sufficient to maintain health. Something was missing. When Hopkins supplemented the diet with minute amounts of milk, the rats thrived. There was something in the milk in addition to the usual nutrients, some food accessory factor that was necessary for growth. Now, Hopkins was not the first to make such an observation. Back in 1893, Christian Eichmann had discovered that a diet of polished rice caused a terrible disease known as beriberi. It had been known in Southern and Eastern Asia for centuries as a disease associated with weight loss, fatigue, progressive paralysis of the legs. Death can come from eventual heart failure. Eichmann produced a disease in birds by feeding them a diet of polished rice and then reversed the condition by giving them the rice bran that had been removed in the polishing process. What birds did he use? Chickens. Obviously, there was something in the bran that was needed for life, but Eichmann was unable to determine what it was. Casimir Funk, a Polish biochemist who had come to America, read an article by Eichmann in which he wrote that people eating brown rice were less vulnerable to beriberi than those who ate only the fully milled product. Funk attempted to isolate the substance responsible and finally succeeded in 1912. The compound turned out to belong to a family of molecules called amines, and Funk, thinking these were vital to life, introduced the term vitamin. The first vitamin isolated was eventually named thiamine and became known as vitamin B1 when it became apparent that other vitamins were also required for optimal health. Funk suggested that other diseases like rickets, pellagra, and scurvy were also vitamin deficiency conditions, an idea that had also occurred to Eichmann. As it turned out, not all vitamins belong to the amine family, and uh, that's why eventually the E was originally present at the end of the word vitamin. It was V-I-T-A-M-I-N-E. It was dropped uh, to prevent confusion. So today uh, we spell vitamins without the E at the end. In uh, 1929, Hopkins and Eichmann shared the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for their work on vitamins. Funk, perhaps justifiably, protested that the Nobel Committee had given the prize to Hopkins for his, quote, discovery of the growth-stimulating vitamins. Hopkins himself, however, never claimed to be the discoverer of vitamins. Indeed, there was no single discoverer as many scientists contributed to the knowledge we now have about vitamins. And the book, 
on what these remarkable compounds can do is not yet closed. We now know that they can do more than prevent certain deficiency diseases. Uh, and their role as antioxidants and anti-cancer agents, of course, is being explored. So now you know something about the history of vitamins. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. The years just seem to fly by, don't they? And uh, a whole year has passed since our last Trottier Public Science Symposium, which means that the next one is in the offing, and it is coming up on September 13 and 14. That's a Wednesday and Thursday night. And this year, the topic that we have selected is use and abuse in the world of sports. And as you can imagine, there's a wealth of uh, interesting items to be discussed there, from the diet that will increase athletic performance to the abuse of drugs. And all of those will be discussed on those two evenings. And this year, it will be at Moist Hall at McGill, which is the wonderful theater that we have in the Arts Building. Uh, right up the main alley as you come in from Sherbrooke Street. And uh, we do ask you to register. Of course, it's free, but we do want to have an idea of how many people will be in attendance. And the way to do that is to go to our website, which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. Uh, these days, of course, you don't even have to put the, the three W's, so just put mcgill.ca slash OSS, mcgill.ca slash OSS. And uh, you'll see, uh, just click and you can register. I mean, obviously, you're not committing to anything. Uh, we just want to know how many people are going to, uh, to attend. So this year, uh, we're looking at uh, two evenings on... Uh, Wednesday and Thursday night, September 13 and 14. All of the information is there on our website. Take a look at it. We have fascinating speakers. I think we're going to have a great time. Uh, so uh, join us. Uh, sign up, register, and uh, we'll see you live on uh, the evening of uh, September 13 and September 14. I did have a correct answer to my question about Otto Lowy and what happens to the second heart. So as I told you, he uh, stimulated the vagus nerve in the first heart that made it beat slower. He took some of the liquid that that heart was immersed in, put that over the second heart, and the second heart also started to beat slower, proving that some soluble chemical released by the vagus nerve was controlling the heart rate. And this was the first demonstration of a neurotransmitter, turned out to be acetylcholine. 
The experiment was iconic because it was the first to demonstrate the release of a chemical substance that could cause a response in the absence of electrical stimulation. It paved the way for the understanding that the electrical signal event, what we call the action potential, causes a chemical event, the release of neurotransmitters, that is ultimately the, the effector on tissues. Uh, Otto Lowy, who was Jewish, received the 1936 Nobel Prize for Medicine, but was forced out of Austria, where he was professor at the University of Graz in 1938, when the Nazis invaded. He ended up in the US at New York University. Interestingly enough, he died on Christmas Day in 1961. So although acetylcholine was the first neurotransmitter that was identified, since that time, dozens have been discovered, some of which, of course, you know about, things like adrenaline and serotonin, uh, but there are dozens of others that are very important in the physiological functioning of our body. I did not get a correct answer to the second question about uh, Lucretius and his poem on the nature of things. Okay, maybe that it's a bit obscure. So let me tell you a little bit about what I had in, uh, in mind. Uh, indeed, uh, Lucretius' poem was one of the first uh, works that was printed by Gutenberg after he invented the printing press in 1453. But Lucretius in that work had written, quote, nature is free and uncontrolled and runs the universe by herself without the aid of gods. Well, to the church in the Middle Ages, this meant he was an atheist. And atomism came to be called a form of atheism. And that's why the Jesuit priests were prevented from teaching it. Uh, of course, then John Dalton finally came up around in the 1800s and uh, resuscitated the ancient theory of Democritus that all matter is composed of atoms and atoms of one type are different from atoms of another type. But Dalton's idea was that these atoms were hard, round spheres that could not be broken apart. And of course, uh, we know that uh, atoms can indeed be fissioned, uh, and that is the basis of uh, nuclear energy. Uh, okay, I had a Texas question, if I've ever heard of Henrietta Lacks. Yes, of course, I've heard of Henrietta Lacks. Uh, Henrietta um, basically gave the cells, although unknowingly, that have since been cultured and used in all kinds of uh, research efforts uh, because uh, her cells were unique in the way that they uh, multiplied. There, there are many articles and books written about Henrietta Lacks, and you may want to take a look at, at, at those. Tell me, have you ever noticed that um, salted butter is usually cheaper than the unsalted version? Ever wondered about that? How can leaving something out raise the price? Well, before refrigeration, butter would often spoil due to bacterial contamination, and salt was then added as a preservative. Uh, it works because it dehydrates bacteria through the process of osmosis. 
water will permeate through a cell membrane to equalize concentrations on both sides. If the salt concentration outside the cell is high, water will flow from the inside to dilute the solution on the outside. Obviously, since salted butter lasted longer, it could be produced more cheaply. Today, the salt is added only for flavor because bacterial spoilage is rarely a problem due to widespread refrigeration. But that price differential uh, has survived. Uh, what about the difference between butter and margarine? Well, of course, no margarine can, can uh, mimic the taste of butter, at least not in, in, uh, in my view. I don't like margarine. Uh, margarine is a cheaper replacement for butter. The original thinking was that uh, because of its fat profile, it was preferable. Uh, I think that if you eat butter in very limited amounts, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, cooking with butter, talking about putting butter on your bread, uh, thin layer of, of butter on bread tastes great. Any kind of layer of margarine on bread does not. So there's my views. And that's it. We have once again come to the end of the show. We are out of time. Remember to go to mcgill.ca slash OSS for all kinds of interesting information, including how you can sign up for a weekly newsletter and how you can register for this year's Trottier Public Science Symposium. We will see you back here, same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.